Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Richard, Third Duke of York, Part 1. The Grand Old Duke of York, he had 10,000... Okay, I'm joking, guys. (laughs) That will be the first, last, and only time you hear me sing. This Duke of York sometimes had 10,000 men, but he wasn't quite that incompetent of a military person. Welcome back to my first episode on a single person in a while. Well, unless you're a patron. Then you will have enjoyed Charles II of Navarre recently. I do want to apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. I've had sick children, and as their full-time parent, I do need to look after them first. Thankfully, they are recovering, but it was a rough few weeks. Plus, as you're about to find out, this subject was a bit more than I expected. When I started researching this episode, I was pretty sure I'd be able to get one very full episode out of it. Instead, as I've gone along, I've realized I need four episodes and none will be shallow. As many of you may know, I'm a big fan of good governance. I believe that kings should respect the social contract in many ways, and to do that, they need to be ready to make decisions. Richard, third Duke of York, was a strong lord, looking for good governance during a time of a weak king. This is a rare occurrence. When the king, a past, would have needed to overthrow, wasn't actually cruel, evil, or uneducated. The king Richard was dealing with was kind, thoughtful, and peaceful. He just wasn't a good king. Plus, the mental health issues he was suffering from weren't doing anyone any favors. Oh, and there's one really important thing to remember. At the start of the story, the Wars of the Roses is something that's not on anyone's mind. In fact, it won't even start until towards the end of the second half of this subject series. For these four episodes, I will be referencing Matthew Lewis's Richard Duke of York, King by Right, Helen Castor's She-Wolves, the same book I used for Isabella of France, and two biographies about Henry VI, one by Bertram Wolfe and the second by Ralph A. Griffiths. My analysis at the end may be a bit different than normal, but I think you'll approve. Now, on to Richard, the Duke of York. Yet again, not the grand old Duke of York. This one was not an ineffective military commander, just outmatched at the end. Had he not been betrayed, or tricked, 
or possibly taunted, he might have become king of England. But sadly for him, the best he could do was be the father of two kings. Honestly, being the father of two kings isn't too bad, right? Richard, third Duke of York, is often portrayed as a grasping, overbearing man who wanted power at all costs. But what if, much like, say, Robert Curtos, he's been judged incorrectly? Much like Curtos probably wasn't lazy and weak, but was in fact devout, hardworking, and conciliatory, Richard could also be described as thoughtful, industrious, and aiming for better government, plus militarily effective. Unlike Curtos, who faced a rather strong king in Henry I, Richard would be facing a weak king in Henry VI, who was often surrounded by strong but self-interested supporters, though we do quickly need to recognize that the king's wife's self-interests weren't that far removed from the king's in the form of their son. You may remember a small bit about Richard from the Mortimer episode. He does come up briefly. He was the youngest and only surviving son of Richard of Conisburgh, the third Earl of Cambridge, and Anne Mortimer. I'll be referring to the father as Conisburgh to avoid confusion, hopefully. <laughs> Conisburgh was the son of Edmund, the first Duke of York, the fourth surviving son of Edward III, and Anne was the great-granddaughter of Lionel of Antwerp, first Duke of Clarence. In case you're wondering how Lionel's line got to the point of great-grandchildren. Well, he had his only child at 16, she had her second child at 18, and that child had his daughter at 14. So four generations in less than 50 years. Whereas Edmund hadn't had Conisper until he was 44. With the siblings' three-year age gap, this meant, oddly, there wasn't a huge age gap between Conisper and Anne. He was only three years older than her. Sadly, Richard, our subject, would be Anne's last child. She died the day he was born, as was the life for women in her time. Richard was born on the 22nd of September, 1411. Richard's father, Conisper, is an interesting story in his own right, so I'm going to tell you a little about him. As I discussed in his father, Edmund of Langley's episode, there is a chance that he wasn't Edmund's biological child. Or he was, and everyone else wasn't their father's biological child. It's important to note that a father claiming his child was really all a child needed to be considered legitimate, especially when born in wedlock. So, while Conisper's biological father may have been Richard II's half-brother, John Holland, it doesn't matter at all in relation to his claim to family titles and property, because Edmund of Langley recognized him. Conisper, as a younger son, wasn't in line to receive much, since Langley didn't have much to give. You'll remember he was the poorest of Edward III's sons. Conisper was 17 when his father died and was left nothing in Edmund of Langley's will. Conisper was left a small income by his mother. His older brother, Edward, resigned or was deprived of his subsidiary title, the Earl of Cambridge, in 1414, and the title was given to Conisper by Henry V. This title came with no property, though. Conisper was set to join Henry V on his 1415 invasion of France, but as I discussed in the Mortimer episode, he instead conspired with a few minor nobles to depose Henry and place his brother-in-law, Edmund Mortimer, the fifth Earl of March, on the throne. 
the Southampton plot was discovered when Mortimer told on the conspirators. Conisberg and the other conspirators were executed in August of 1415, before the king set sail for France. At the time, Richard, Duke of York, wasn't even four. He was just Richard then. <laughs> in an interesting detail, Conisberg wasn't attained, so his title passed to his son, and other family titles could pass to him. Now, Conisberg did have an older brother, Edward, second Duke of York. Edward did join Henry V on his campaign in France. Edward would die on the 25th of October, 1415, at the Battle of Agincourt, during Henry V's victory. With his death, things would change dramatically for Richard. Richard became a ward of the crown. Remember this from the This Too Shall Past episode on wardships. It means that he didn't receive control of his lands, including his late uncle's lands, until he was an adult. His wardship would eventually be sold to Ralph Neville, the first Earl of Westmoreland in the early 1420s. Neville was the second husband of Joan Beaufort, Henry V's half-aunt through his grandfather, John of Gaunt, and step-grandmother, Catherine Swinford. Neville and Joan had ten surviving children together. They had four who wouldn't survive to adulthood plus his eight children from his first marriage and her two daughters from her first marriage. Yes, that's 20 children who survived to adulthood between the two of them. With that many children, especially 11 daughters, the Neville family needed to do what they could to make sure their daughters married well. They solved this problem in one case by having one of Ralph's sons from his first marriage marry one of Joan's daughters from her first marriage. This is not as uncommon as you'd think. In addition to Richard's wardship, the family also purchased his marriage rights. Richard was betrothed to the couple's youngest daughter, Cecily, in 1424, when he was 13 and she was 9. The young couple would marry in 1429, when he was 18 and she was 14. Don't worry, though, they wouldn't have their first child until 1439. While Richard was wealthy, he had no access to his wealth. Henry V would die in 1422, of everyone's favorite, dysentery, and was succeeded by his infant son, Henry VI. The young king's early reign would be controlled by his uncles. Henry did live in his mother's household for a short time, but she had next to no control over him. Instead of Richard controlling his income, it was used by the king's uncles to help raise funds for the kingdom. Richard, though, while not in control, was still important. His land holdings meant that one day he would be able to lead vast numbers of soldiers and raise funds to help the English war effort in France. So he wasn't just cast to one side. He was educated by the Neville family, and in March 1428, he was requested, read commanded, to join the king's household. Ralph Neville had died in October of 1425, but his wife had retained Richard's wardship, and she sent her son-in-law slash cousin to her great-nephew. Did I mention everyone is related? <laughs> Richard was 10 years older than the six-year-old king. It's likely the king's uncles wanted to make sure one of the future leaders of the kingdom was raised in a way they would approve of. There is someone's passing earlier in 1425 that I should mention. Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March. You'll remember him from earlier in this episode, and the episode he shared with his father, uncle, and sister. With his passing, the senior claim via Leonol of Antwerp transferred to Richard. 
I should mention the king's surviving uncles in a bit more detail now. You'll remember that Henry IV had four sons, and two of them would survive Henry V. Henry IV's third son, John, Duke of Bedford, would act as Henry V's regent, mainly in France, but also in England. Bedford was an impressive military leader. In 1423, he had married Anne of Burgundy, the daughter of John the Fearless. Their marriage was happy, but the couple would have no children. Bedford's connection with Burgundy would lead to him being the person who put Joan of Arc on trial after she was captured by Burgundian troops. The youngest uncle of the king was Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Gloucester was rather lucky to be alive. He could literally thank his oldest brother, who stood over him when he fell down during the Battle of Agincourt. Without Henry V's literal physical protection, Gloucester would have likely been crushed and died, and his devotion to Henry V's reign, ideals, and plans would hurt him in the long run. But it's easy to see why he would be devoted to his late brother. Gloucester would act as the Lord Protector in England, since Bedford was continuing military conflicts in France. He and Bedford didn't get along, leading to conflicts with Bedford's Burgundian allies. Gloucester was the most classically educated of the brothers and didn't have the military knowledge that his brothers did have. His love life was a bit of a mess. Both his marriages were annulled, and like his brothers, he had no legitimate children. For those keeping track, this means that Henry VI was the only legitimate child of any of Henry IV's sons. Henry IV did have one other grandson, Rupert, by one of his daughters. Sadly, Rupert died without issue at 19. Remember that part of the reason Parliament was supportive of Henry IV was because he had four sons, and Richard II had no children at all. There are a few other relatives of the king that I should mention as well. Henry Beaufort, the second son of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, was the Bishop of Winchester from 1404 to 1447. He was the king's half-great-uncle and Richard's full uncle-in-law as Joan Beaufort's brother. He was also powerful as both a church and lay leader and one of the richest men in the kingdom. He would regularly loan the crown funds. I think this covers all the powerful men of the family at this time. <laughs> Richard would be with the young king when he was crowned in England in November of 1429, where Richard was created a Knight of the Bath. This isn't the modern order of the bath. Having Richard nearby would indicate that he and a few other young knights were being prepared to be Henry VI's companions as the king grew up. Think all the way back to John II of France and his closest companion, Charles de Lacerda. Lacerda would have been brought into John's household when they were younger, this was a normal practice and would give the king built-in friends who could also help him with the country later in life. After the coronation, Richard was moved in even closer to the inner circle of the kingdom. He was commissioned to act as constable of the country when John Bedford was out of the country. There were other options available, so choosing Richard wasn't done out of expediency. Instead, the king's council chose him on purpose since he was literally close to the king as his friend and close to the throne as one of the heirs after Henry VI's uncles. The next thing Richard would join the king for was his second coronation. Yes, young Henry VI got two coronations because he was also king of France. Well, disputed king of France. To be the king of France, he needed to be crowned in France. Traditionally, this would occur in Reims. 
The French party, following Charles VII, who had been crowned in 1429, was still fighting for control of the country. But they held Reims. <laughs> Bedford had managed to maintain most of Henry V's gains, but Charles VII was not giving up and had help in the form of Joan of Arc. You may have heard of her. Special episode for her coming soon, patrons. Henry VI and his escort, including Richard, would arrive in Calais on the 23rd of April, 1430. I learned while researching for this episode that that is St. George's Day, the patron saint of England. I'm sure it would have been seen as a good omen. It would take the party more than 18 months to arrive in Paris. They took the slow route. Richard was given a place of honour riding up with the king on the way into the city. Henry VI was crowned on the 16th of December, 1431. Had he been successful at his claim, he would have been Henry II of France. Surprisingly, instead of being crowned by the Archbishop of Reims, I mean, he wasn't in Reims, so they could at least get the Archbishop to do it. He was crowned by his great uncle, now Cardinal Henry Beaufort. The group would return to England in January of 1432. 1432 was a big year for Richard. During Parliament in May that year, Richard requested that he be granted his majority, i.e. be declared an adult and receive control of his lands. Richard was 21, a normal age to be granted his lands and titles. His petition does make reference to his lands having been under the control of others who hadn't taken the best care. You'll remember those others had been given the lands to hold by the crown, so it's likely a little on the nose, but it was likely rhetoric. Remember, this king was only 11 at this time, so most of the country was controlled by the king's uncles. While we would think this is odd today, Richard did have to pay the king for these lands, along with paying the Duke of Gloucester. He was paying the king the equivalent of a quarter of a million pounds in 2016, and Gloucester half a million pounds. This gives a hint of how vast Richard's estates were. He was still making the equivalent of two million pounds annually. So not John of Gaunt numbers, but nothing to turn your nose at. He would have been the wealthiest landholder who wasn't descended from John of Gaunt. And thinking back to where Edmund of Langley was, this is quite impressive. In addition to being the Duke of York, he was also the Earl of Cambridge, the Earl of March, the Earl of Rutland, and the Earl of Ulster. A year later, Richard was inducted into the Order of the Garter. Those of you who are patrons will know a bit of the situation between France and England thanks to the patron-only episode, Henry V, but I should let the rest of you know a few things. <laughs> While Henry VI's father, Henry V, had theoretically won France through battle and the Treaty of Troyes secured him the crown, he died before his father-in-law, Charles VI, and was therefore never king of France. Charles VI died in October of 1422, six weeks after Henry V. As I mentioned earlier, Henry VI had been crowned, but his reign in France wasn't unchallenged, to say the least. Charles VI's only surviving son, also Charles, had been crowned Charles VII in 1429. And after this message, you'll hear more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Prior to his coronation, English forces under Henry the Sixth uncle, Bedford, had done well keeping the French at bay. And for a while, it looked like England and France might become a personal union under Henry VI. Things began to change, though, in 1429, when Joan of Arc came into the picture. And while she would be captured a bit more than a year after she joined the French cause, her belief in Charles VII spurred much of France to believe in him as well, and probably him to believe in himself. The Burgundians had supported England, and Henry VI's uncle, John, Duke of Bedford, was married to Anne of Burgundy, the daughter of John the Fearless. But Anne died in 1432, and less than six months later, Bedford remarried to Jaquetta of Luxembourg. This marriage would have been fine, except Bedford didn't consult his former brother-in-law, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy. Philip was insulted by the lack of consultation, and this may have had a part in moving the Burgundians from supporting the English towards supporting the French. In addition to this difficulty, Bedford was unwell, but still trying to lead English forces in France. Sadly, with limited funds, mainly due to the cost of two coronations. Richard would have had plenty to do just staying in England. He needed to look after his lands. He was extending a collegiate church that had been founded by his uncle. He might even have wanted to have some children. <laughs> Sadly, it wasn't the time for Richard to do the things he wanted to do. Well, I'm sure the building project could have continued to go on without him there, but the, the family thing would not work without him around. Instead, he was to be sent to France. Henry VI regent and uncle, John, Duke of Bedford, died in September of 1435, at only 46. His illness caught up to him. He and his second wife hadn't had any children together. Though Jaquetta of Luxembourg will come up again and prove that not having children with Bedford was not her fault in the slightest. Right before his death, the Treaty of Troyes was picked apart, 
with the Burgundians transferring their allegiance to the French throne. The French French throne. (laughs) This didn't mean that England was going to stop fighting for France. Henry VI still claimed it through his great-great-great-grandfather and through his father's claim as Charles VI's heir. With Bedford gone, Henry VI's surviving uncle, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and his surviving great-uncle, Cardinal Henry Beaufort, began to vie for power. While Gloucester felt the cardinal should have kept to religious matters, the cardinal felt it was important to push for the favor of his Beaufort nephews, John Beaufort, Earl of Somerset, and Edmund Beaufort, Earl of Dorset. Though John was a prisoner in France right now, so not currently able to help his uncle or himself that much. Neither Cardinal Beaufort nor Gloucester was the right choice to actually lead in France. Gloucester lacked the experience, and the cardinal was a cardinal. (laughs) But it wasn't going to stop either of them from trying to control the person who was chosen to go. Richard was the compromise candidate. He was still a prince of the blood and was married to a distant member of the family. And by choosing him, Gloucester could help thwart Cardinal Beaufort's control. Remember, the cardinal is pretty much controlling the purse strings at this point through his loans to the crown. Richard was only appointed as the lieutenant general, not regent in France, as his predecessor had been. His term was for one year. This wouldn't have been the worst choice for his long-term prospects. France was not an easy place for the English with Charles VII's recent gains. And it would mean he could return to England and his lands, and his wife, quickly. At least in theory. Also, Richard wasn't given the power to make appointments or grant land, which made his role mainly focused on war, not ruling. He brought his brothers-in-law from the younger portion of the Neville family, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, Jury Ux Oris, and William Neville, Lord Falconbird, Jury Ux Oris. Before anyone gets too excited, this is not that Richard Neville. It's his father. The group finally left in June of 1436. They would set up shop in Rouen. They would be met in France by John Talbot, who would provide a great deal of local knowledge and military leadership. In April of that year, Charles VII had liberated Paris from English control. This meant the group had their work cut out for them. They were more successful than expected, retaking several Norman towns, but they were slightly undercut by Cardinal Beaufort he decided to send his nephew Edmund to France. Edmund was meant to go to Maine and Anjou, which are obviously southish of Normandy, but he was ordered by Gloucester to push south from Calais, which is northeast of Normandy and significantly north of Maine and Anjou. Gloucester just had to have the last word over his uncle. (laughs) Thankfully, at least for Richard, this didn't hurt his performance in France. Once his year was up, he requested a return home, but was forced to wait for his replacement to arrive. His replacement was Richard Beecham, 13th Earl of Warwick. And no, he's not that Earl of Warwick. That is his future son-in-law. I promise that specific Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, will come up soon. (laughs) An interesting thing about this elder Earl Warwick, he was Henry VI's tutor throughout the young king's childhood. Richard probably had plenty of complaints about this delay in appointing his replacement. He had no actual power during the six months he was waiting. Plus, he hadn't been paid for the year that he had officially worked. 
this not paying problem would go on for quite a while. Without the king's uncle, Bedford, in control, it seems that things in England were not going well when Richard returned. In November of 1437, the king, then 15, had called a great council. Oddly, despite being one of the highest-ranking men in the country, Richard was not included on this council. The council would be advising the king on his government in France and England, but it would also see a great change in England. In December of that year, Henry VI turned 16, and though well, much younger than most, was granted his majority. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, Henry VI's reign would be marked by his mental illness. But at 16, that wasn't a known problem. In fact, he wouldn't show any signs of mental illness for more than 10 years at this point. I point this out because the young king was a very different ruler than his father. He favored peace with France, probably influenced by his great uncle, Cardinal Beaufort. And I don't want to suggest this was due to any mental illness. He really was, in general, a peaceful man. I need to take a short diversion from the Yorkist narrative to discuss a few political occurrences that will impact Richard's story in a few moments. Throughout these goings-on, he was away from court. One of the young king's first decisions, though, was one of his more questionable ones. Henry approved the release of Charles, Duke of Orléans. You'll remember him from the Dauphin's episode. He was the son of Louis of Orléans, the younger brother of Charles VI of France. I'll continue referring to Charles, Duke of Orléans, as Charles Orléans, just as I did in that earlier episode. He had been a prisoner in England since the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. This was more than 20 years ago at this point. Charles Orléans wouldn't return to France for more than two years after his release was approved because he was required to fund his own journey home. Took some time to get the money over. If you're curious, he will be getting an episode later this year, along with two other Charleses and an Antoine, in a series I think I'll call Poor Timing in Fatherhood. Any guesses on who the others will be? Cardinal Beaufort wasn't necessarily advising his great-nephew poorly with this release. At the time, the French French king, Charles VII, only had one living son, Louis, which means that Charles Orléans was next in line to the French claim on the throne. It was also hoped that this would play against Burgundian interests, since Charles Orléans was still the leading member of the Armagnac faction. Sadly, this last hope did not pass, and Charles Orléans joined the Burgundian faction by marrying one of Philip the Good's nieces, Marie of Cleves. This meant he wasn't helping the English in any way, shape, or form like they hoped. The Duke of Gloucester was unimpressed by this decision, to say the least, since Henry V's will expressly forbade his release. Less than a year after securing this, Cardinal Beaufort was able to secure the release of his nephew, John Earl of Somerset, in exchange for Charles of Artois, Count of O. Fun fact, this Charles is the great-grandson of Robert of Artois, who featured in the first episode of this not-so-many-series. This was also forbidden in Henry V's will until Henry VI was of age to deal with it. I'm sure the cardinal would argue that the young king had been granted his majority, but he wasn't even 18 when these decisions were being made. This further angered Gloucester, who was a supporter of protecting his oldest brother's plans and wanted to make sure the protections Henry V had left in place would hold to protect Henry VI. Remember, these were high-value hostages 
who would have had control in France when they got there. There's one final thing I must mention before getting back to Richard's narrative. His brothers-in-law. As I mentioned earlier, he had a lot of them, and they in turn had some children. (laughs) Richard's oldest brother-in-law, John Neville, died in 1420. When Ralph Neville died in 1425, he was succeeded as Earl by John's oldest son, Ralph, who was born in 1406, making this younger Ralph five years older than Richard. The older Ralph Neville's children from his second marriage were importantly the nieces and nephews of Cardinal Beaufort, and their mother, Joan Beaufort, was a powerful woman in her own right. She was able to secure most of the Neville properties for her children, including those that traditionally should have gone to Ralph's older children by means of primogeniture. These two branches of the Nevilles were not getting along, mainly due to the older branch being disinherited from property by the younger branch, though the titles did go to the older branch. This feuding led to Henry VI demanding that the two sides agree to peace with him and stop fighting. As Matthew Lewis puts it in his book, Quote, this was to prove the model for ineffectual justice under Henry VI, from which most felt themselves exempt. End quote. From my general reading about Henry VI, it seems his favorite way to make peace was to tell the two sides to stop fighting and that they were at peace. Yay, peace! Problem solving was not a skill he seemed to possess, and he really just wanted everyone to get along which is great when you're a child king and your uncles can sort things out for you, but not so great as you begin to rule on your own. Returning to Richard's story, in 1438, he received a really great gift. His first child, a daughter, Joan, likely named for his mother-in-law. The baby sadly passed away not long after birth. The couple's second child, though, Anne, likely named for Richard's mother, was born in 1439 they would have a total of 13 children. Only six would outlive Richard, though a seventh came very close, as we'll find out at the end of this story. Sorry, spoilers. His surviving children, Anne, Edward, Elizabeth, Margaret, George, and Richard, will all play a role in the episodes that follow, and the next subject as well. But I'll wait a little longer to give them their full introductions. In 1439, Richard re-entered public life due to events in France. At the end of April 1439, Richard Beecham died. He was 57 and had spent much of his life at war. He had been in France since he replaced Richard in November of 1437. Parliament was called in November of 1439, the first since Henry VI had declared his majority. They needed to deal with the appointment of a successor to Beecham and make long-term plans for France. Sometime before Christmas, the Duke of Gloucester had basically told Cardinal Beaufort all the problems he had with him. He attacked his uncle for accepting the elevation to Cardinal, in spite of Henry V's prior expressed wishes that the then Bishop Beaufort reject the elevation. Sort of in his defense, Beaufort did wait until Henry V died before accepting. Gloucester further protested the release of Charles Orléans and railed against a Cardinal belonging to Parliament. Remember the Lords was a bit different then. I'll do an episode on This Too Shall Pass, explaining each of the religious ranks within the Catholic Church in the future. But the best way to think of it is a cardinal is a prince of the church, if the pope is the king, and the church is in Rome. A bishop is a feudal landholder within the country of his bishopric. 
Gloucester also laid complaints at the feet of the Archbishop of York, who had accepted a cardinal's hat in 1439, accusing both cardinals of alienating Gloucester from both the king and his other royal cousins, including Richard and John Holland, Duke of Exeter, a cousin of Gloucester's through his aunt Elizabeth of Lancaster, John of Gaunt's second daughter. It appears that Gloucester had quite a few long-term issues with his uncle, because he also brought up the release of James I of Scotland way back in 1424. Oh, and one more thing, Gascony needed to be looked after as well. Have you all forgotten about that? Gloucester had a lot to say. He laid the exclusion from government of Princes of the Blood, himself, Richard, and Exeter, at Cardinal Beaufort's feet. Matthew Lewis suggests this exclusion was part of the reason for Richard's absence from politics for almost two years. So what happened after Gloucester made all these accusations? Exactly nothing. At least not in the sense of any change occurring. I'm sure it led to plenty of gossip in court and Beaufort glaring at his nephew. But the king knew he couldn't upset his great uncle, Cardinal Beaufort, who controlled the purse strings of the kingdom. The king may have been an adult, but England was broke and needed loans from the cardinal to survive. Gloucester was lucky in some ways. Challenging such a powerful man could often end badly for the accuser, but since he was the nephew of the man he was accusing, and the only close living relative of the king, he was protected. But man, was he upset. Even with this bit of mudslinging in Parliament, the leading men and the king still had to find a replacement for Beecham in France. While the king may have wanted peace and may not have been keen on being king of France, there were still English territories in France that he needed to oversee. Cardinal Beaufort's choice for Beecham's successor is easy. His nephew, John Beaufort, Earl of Somerset. Somerset would go to France for a short time in 1440, but as Gloucester's deputy. Gloucester's goal was to raise the funds and men he needed to support him as lieutenant general in France, but he wasn't able to. Instead, Gloucester backed Richard to take on the role of lieutenant general a second time. Unlike Richard's first round in France, this time he would be given all the powers of a regent, but a different title since the king was no longer a minor. I find it interesting that Gloucester chose Richard in opposition to his uncle, when Richard was married to the same uncle's niece. It's likely that Richard hadn't made his political leanings known at this point, and Gloucester needed a high-ranking man to compete with his cousin Somerset to prevent Cardinal Beaufort from winning this round. Richard was officially appointed to the post in July of 1440. With Richard's appointment, I'm going to stop here for the week. Before I go, I'd like to welcome my newest patrons, Jory and Lucy Elizabeth. Thank you both for joining us. All patrons get ad-free episodes and a shout-out from me in a regular episode, and sometimes get more shout-outs. Those in the $5 per month era parent and $15 per month usurp tiers get special episodes, usually once per month. Special episodes are only available to patrons and those on ACAST+. Those in the usurp tier can select their own subject for a special episode, in addition to all the other rewards. Check out patreon.com to find out more. I also make sure to post my history comics on Patreon first, and all this too shall past episodes post to Patreon on Monday instead of Wednesday. With that, I'll be back next week with part two. I'll see you all then. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. 
please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod.